Hey everyone, Dave Broadbeck here. The lecture you're about to hear is for psychology, also biology, uh, 3506 neuropharmacology, and it's for the, uh, I guess, winter of 2018. Enjoy. So today, we talk about nicotine. Expression, smoke them if you got them. You have to see old war movies. They often say that. In fact, one of the reasons that, that, that cigarettes became popular was because of World War One. Uh, before World War One, basically people didn't smoke a lot of cigarettes. People smoked cigars, little cigars, uh, pipe tobacco. And in World War One, tobacco companies managed to convince both uh, Allied and central power governments to include cigarettes in the rations of the soldiers, and then you suddenly have all these guys who are 20 years old coming back home addicted to nicotine. Yay! So that's where cigarettes, that's why cigarettes become popular, actually. Um, those are actually, that's a couple of packs of cigarettes from mine. I still have that lighter. Uh, it was given to me by some students when my son was born. There's a time. All right. So the active ingredient, of course, you know, in tobacco is nicotine, and this is the only plant in nature where nicotine exists. Okay. Cigarettes and other things, uh, other tobacco products are increasingly uh, in the West, so in, in Western Europe and North America, coming under regulatory regimes. For the longest time, and this is really hard to believe, I think, for many of us, but for the longest time, things like cigarettes weren't regulated by anything. So, for example, in the States, the FDA, I believe, now takes care of cigarettes. Um, it didn't before. It used to be they weren't regulated at all. They were regulated how they could advertise, right? So it used to be, in fact, and this is before your time, well, pretty almost before mine, cigarette ads used to be on TV. The last cigarette ad on TV uh, in the States and also in Canada was an episode of The Tonight Show starring Johnny Carson literally at midnight on December 31st, 1969. It became illegal to advertise cigarettes on TV in 1970. There were cigarette ads everywhere in on, on, on buses, in, in, in magazines, etc. into the 1980s. Well into the 1980s. Right? With people smoking and then doing athletic things. Like, it was just like, you know, the world has changed a great deal. So now, now, now cigarettes, for example, uh, tobacco products in general, are regulated a lot more. But up until, this didn't happen until the early 2000s, which is kind of amazing to think. The societal shift about smoking was dramatic and it was quick. When I was an undergraduate at Western between 1984 and 1988, you could smoke in the library. Couldn't bring food in. But holding fire was fine around books. Steady Carols had uh, ashtrays built in. Okay. When you had a break in a class, oftentimes the professor would say, smoke them if you got them. And the hallways would be just like gray and blue with cigarettes. And there were ashtrays everywhere. We don't have any more. In, here, signs in classrooms that say no smoking, but there were up until, oh geez, the early 2000s, which should tell you something. When you have to have a sign that says no smoking, that means people used to smoke there. Oftentimes, the faculty and prof would come in and say smokers to the left, not smokers to the right, or something like that, and would be smoking him or herself. People used to smoke everywhere. And now, even if you smoke and you go over to somebody's house who smokes, you say, I'm going to go outside for a cigarette. Right? No one just lights up in someone's house. People used to have ashtrays who didn't smoke. Like they didn't smoke, but they still had ashtrays up because smokers might come over. The world has really changed. And that was into the 1990s. Pretty amazing. Um, well, how do you administer this? You probably know. Well, first of all, you could do chewing tobacco. <coughs> Don't swallow it. You can... So you just let the, through osmosis, through the mucous membranes in your cheek, basically. Just a pinch between your cheek and gum. There used to be ads on TV for chewing tobacco. 
that was the thing. Just a chip pinch between your cheek and gum. And you spit the stuff out. You don't swallow it. If you swallow it, you get very, very violently sick. Baseball players used to chew tobacco all the time. You see old pictures of ball players. They've got this great big thing in their and it's not gum. It's chewing tobacco. And I remember, I think it was Steve Carlton of the Philadelphia Phillies. It was a quick comeback to the mound, and he swallowed some of his tobacco. And then in front of 40,000 people, he just threw up on the pictures. And then, of course, finished the game, the play game. Yeah. Obviously, when we smoke it, we can regulate how much we take in, right? So yeah, to a point. Like... In fact, smokers are really good at trading their dose. Yeah. How would you do that with something like like this? Because you can really the amount you put in. The amount you put. Yeah. In. So, like, you you know how much to put in, and you spit a lot. So a lot of the spitting. So when the, when when you you've got too much of a hit, you spit the tobacco. But the tobacco, you spit, you spit out tobacco juice and saliva. It's disgusting. So you regulate it by spitting out the. Yeah. By spitting it out and not, not dipping so much. I say this because, of course, when I was 14 years old and you play sandlot baseball, everybody shoots tobacco because the major leaguers do that. It's <laughs> a different time. The world was strange. My dad told me that when he started smoking when he was, I think, 14, and he just lit a cigarette at breakfast one morning. His mother said, Richard, that's when you stunt your growth. And he said, I'm six foot one, Mom, and I'm 14. She sort of is like, well, point taken. You know, I'll buy you a lighter. You know, it's like the world is way different than it used to be. Um, when you swallow it, it gets metabolized pretty quickly. And it, it'll make you exceedingly lightheaded and very, very ill. Because you're getting a huge dose of tobacco all at once. It'd be like eating cigarettes. And literally, children, you know, babies, toddlers, die every year from eating cigarettes. It's sad. If you smoke and you're around kids, keep your cigarettes up high. What is the LD50 of nicotine? I don't know the answer to that, but I know that like, like a little kid eating, eating like five cigarettes would kill him. So it's very, very It's low thing. enough that in that kind of, See, the thing is, when you take it, when you are, say, chewing or when you're smoking, you are never taking that kind of dose. Right? So it's like if you took... Yeah. Again, this used to be when I was a kid and my parents would party. The next morning, there'd be like a can of Coke and it would just be full of cigarette butts because people, because the ashtrays were full. Like if you drank that can, you'd, 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 you'd die. Like it's just way too much. Yeah. You can take it uh, nasally too, so snuff. Snort it basically. It goes in through mucous membranes. And of course, you can smoke it, which is the cool grown up way to do it. The nicotine vaporizes and goes to your lungs, into your bloodstream very quickly. So it's absorbed also into your mouth uh, when you get smoke in your mouth. Um, basically, blood to heart to brain, it moves very quickly. And the amount of nicotine that hits your brain depends on the smoking method. So inhaling really makes a difference. So if you inhale, and those of you who don't smoke or have never smoked don't realize that when you, when you are, quote, inhaling, you literally are sucking it into your lungs. It's part of breathing. You're, you're calling the smoke goes in, you know? So if you don't inhale, it's gonna less is gonna get to your brain very quickly. So if you just and you might say, why would you not inhale? Well, if you smoke cigars, unless you're a cigarette smoker who smokes cigars, then you inhale the crap out of it. I don't do that anymore. I only smoke cigars while camping, like that. That's it. Uh, so three a year kind of thing, and I don't inhale because like at first it's like a reflex because we used to smoke. It's like, Oh, that's a mistake. Oh, okay, that's not going to happen again. That was unpleasant. But you don't get quite the... Like, a cigarette will give you a buzz. Like, if you haven't had a cigarette in a while and then you smoke, or if you don't smoke, and you inhale a little bit of it, you would believe how beautifully lightheaded you feel. Like, it's like, oh, I know, I feel. See why people do this. This feels... Whoa! Have some more after you finish coughing. Doesn't really happen with a cigar. You get a hit of nicotine... It's coming in a different way. 
Uh, ultralight cigarettes. Now, this is something that they don't want me to know. There are cigarettes called ultralight cigarettes. Uh, by the way, the names, like, you know they have, they, now they don't name them, if you know this. They used to be like light and medium, and then they wouldn't have the one for the ones that are like harsh, that are like sucking on the back of a bus. But, you know, like export a green pack, players' planes. But, Putters. when they used to have like things like, for example, players' light. They aren't any lighter. They're just not packed as tightly. It's a sucker. Okay. Ultralight cigarettes, however, do cut down the amount of nicotine that hits your brain. And it also cuts down on the amount of, well, shit that goes in your lungs. The tar and all the other crap that's in there. The way they do this is there are little vents in the filter, okay? And a lot of the smoke goes up through the vent. And even if you suck really hard, and those of you who smoke or who have smoked know that when someone gives you like one of those 100, 100s of the really, really long cigarettes, they just aren't packed up. That's the only difference there. You just suck hard enough and it's fine. It doesn't really work with the little vent. The vents, all the smoke goes out. Now, the problem is that a lot of people don't smoke them that way. So they actually, if, you're, if you smoke them as directed, you literally do get less crap in your lungs and less nicotine. But the issue here is that most people, what they do when they're given those is they put their lips over <laughs> the vents and then you're getting all the smoke into your lungs and all you're doing is convincing yourself that you're being more healthy because it says ultralight. And I don't even think they can be advertised or called ultralight cigarettes anymore. A friend of mine did some smoking research. He was looking at smoking behavior. One of the things he found, he would ask people if they smoke, what kind of cigarettes they smoke, like light or medium or extra light. And he found a person who smoked extra lights but then carried tape with him and he just tape up the vents and smoke them. <laughs> it's like saying, you know, I don't like to consume a lot of fat, so I order always order low fat things, but then I have a big glass of heavy cream with it. <laughs> it's like you kind of feed the purpose there, dude. So even though they make those I don't buy cigarettes anymore, so I don't even know. I think they still do them. Uh, of course, the other way, uh, the gum, nicotine gum, uh, again, you don't swallow your spit with nicotine gum, and you don't chew it like gum. The hardest thing for, nic- for, for, for smokers when they first start chewing nicotine gum is to realize you don't chew it the way you chew dentine. It's when you feel you need a hit of nicotine, in other words, you get a craving, you bite down once or twice, and you don't swallow the spit. In fact, it's a good idea to spit it because it'll give you heartburn and it burns like hell on the way down. Before meetings, an old friend of mine, Duncan, my friend Duncan, who I once watched smoke a cigarette, a cigar, and a pipe at the same time, um, in the student pub at the Memorial University of Newfoundland, Duncan died of cancer, not lung cancer, which was amazing. Remember, he called me and said, oh, I got cancer. I said, and it's not your lungs? He had a very, had a very good attitude about it. But the thing is, before meetings, he would often say, well, we can't smoke. Want some nicotine gum? <laughs> and the first time you chew nicotine gum, you don't know what you're doing. You just get sick. Also, the patch just works, just, you know, uh, you're absorbing skin from your... Okay. Questions so far? I think most of you know about smoking. All right. So there are receptors. One, one often wonders, when you see people take a drug, and nicotine, of course, is a drug, when you see people smoke, which is strange behavior, there's a wonderful, uh, look up a, an old, old comedy routine from 1960 by Bob Newhart about him explaining to the Queen of England, or sorry, talking to Sir Walter Raleigh about bringing tobacco back to the New World, and, trying to un- and laughing about it. So you take these leaves and you light them on fire, and you suck the fiery, really. It's quite funny. But it's odd behavior. And you often wonder, why do people smoke? Right? If you never smoke a cigarette, you might think, well, why would you do that? Because there are receptors. Well, first of all, these are called uh, nicotonic acetylcholine receptors. Okay? And they're in your cortex. No, no. Maybe it'll help you think. Basal ganglia, which is basically... Bunch of neurons that connect the midbrain to the forebrain. Good enough way to say it. The ventral tegmental area and the nucleus accumbens. Oh, I see. That actually directly rewards you. It feels good to smoke. 
to quote my late father, I don't care what anybody says, cigarettes taste good. And they don't actually taste good, but they feel good when you... If you smoke, smoking feels great, except for the cough. And eventually realizing you can hear yourself breathe. I should stop smoking. That's a moment, by the way, in your life as a smoker. Ooh, I'm wheezing and I'm healthy. That's weird. That's probably a sign I smoke too much. Too much being some. All right, so in the peripheral nervous system, um, you get tremors. One of the things, go, don't do this because this would be kind of rude, but if you see people smoking up front, go up to them and when they see they're smoking and say, hold your hand steady, and they'll do this. Okay, because they're smoking. It's a stimulant. A lot of stimulants will do that. Uh, you get inhibition in the, in the, in the peripheral nervous system, uh, which is basically stimulant, but it's disinhibition. You're inhibiting inhibition. Yeah. Then this calming effect that when you smoke, is this like a sort of like a placebo? Then? We'll talk about that in a second. It's, a, it's an excellent question. Constriction of blood vessels. It's very easy to tell smokers. Shake hands with me. Okay, pull hands. Cold hands, cold noses, cold toes. Very rarely you're going to touch somebody's nose or their toes, which might shake hands. So you can do a whole Sherlock Holmes thing. Also, their fingers will be yellow. <laughs> sort of a dead giveaway. If they're if they're smoking enough. But my th- I know what's going on. There's going to be some kind of dye in my gloves. I noticed like, this morning. It's like, what the hell? It looks like I've been rolling cigarettes with my thumb. <laughs> Weird. There's going to be something in my gloves. I don't know why I'm telling you that, but I'm just saying, that's not from smoking. It's like, who smokes like this? <laughs> there are, of course, central nervous system effects as well. Uh, it affects the reward system. You get a release of norepinephrine, epinephrine, dopamine, and serotonin. It's a stimulant. So it's a central nervous system stimulant. Right? So it shouldn't surprise you, for example, that smoking before bed makes you have trouble sleeping. And those of you smoke know this, it's like, well, I probably should have a cigarette before bed. Okay. Now, there's a weird effect. It's a stimulant, yet people smoke to calm down. And you will hear this said, and those of you who have friends who smoke or who do smoke know that you will say that when you're anxious, like, oh, I need a cigarette. Wait till exam time, right? Get till get till April, and it, it's like it's it's like a smoking festival outside. Which is gross, right? Everybody's smoking, throwing their cigarette butts everywhere. And some guy named Nesbit. I was thinking of this guy that I went to high school with. His last name was Nesbit. It wasn't him. I just always imagine him. Noticed this, even though other people had noticed it before, and gave it a name and said it's Nesbitt's paradigm. So then he goes down to history as the guy who just named it. Right? Kind of bugs me. It's like you can name anything, anything, but you want now, and say that's so. From now on, when it rains and it's sunny, you know, a sun shower, that's Broadbeck's paradox. Just I'm going to call it that from now on. So is it the physical act of smoking? Is it actually going to distract you? That's a possibility. Right? It distracts you from your anxiety because you actually have to do something. You have to take out your cigarettes. You have to get out your lighter or a match. So maybe it's going to distract you. Maybe it's getting rid of withdrawal symptoms. Withdrawal symptoms from nicotine are nasty. They're unpleasant. They don't like heroin withdrawal symptoms. There's not a lot of puking and diarrhea, but which is good, just imagine that. But they're unpleasant, and you feel angry, and you have this craving that can only be described as a nicotine craving. It's, it's, it, there's no other way to describe it. But the interesting thing is that actually these nicotonic acetylcholine receptors also exist in the GABA system. And this was discovered early 2000s. 
And I was actually at the talk where the guy first unveiled this, which was complete dumb luck. I was at a conference. I was at the Canadian Society for Brain Behavior and Cognitive Science in Vancouver. Uh, and my friend Duncan, the aforementioned friend Duncan, was at the Canadian Psychological Association and same place in Vancouver. Now, the problem with going to CPA is to go to CPA costs like hundreds and hundreds of dollars to register and get a name tag. And they check your name tag on the way in. Like, it's just, it's like, it's, it's worse than Hitler. Whereas, no, it's not worse than Hitler. BBCS, we didn't ever care. But my friend Duncan said, you know, this talk here would interest you. It's about evolutionary social psychology, and I want to go to that. Why don't you just come and just, you know, wear your BBCS badge and put, put your, just put, have your, just have your hand kind of blocking it most of the way. We'll just walk in. So, you know, you sneak in, right? Just crash in the conference. So I go to do this. It works. Yeah, I am. So, so I sit down, and this guy starts talking, uh, and he says, so... I'm going to talk today about nicotine receptors in the GABA system. And Duncan says, oh, it's the wrong talk. I said, shut up. It's totally the right talk. This is awesome. And this, this was first figured out. It was in the early 2000s. Teams of scientists in Canada and the States basically figured out that there are these nicotonic acetylcholine receptors in the GABA system. So we talked about how in the GABA system with benzodiazepines, barbiturates, alcohol, well, actually, it literally calms you down. If it's making GABA work better, it's going to be... The paradox now makes sense. It's a stimulant, but it also is a depressant. It's like Reese's peanut butter cups, you know? You got chocolate in my peanut butter, and it tastes delicious. You got stimulant in my depressant, and I want a cigarette. Like, it's perfect. Yep. So Nesbitt's paradox is basically the more <coughs> I ingest nicotine or smoke, rather, the more common. The, the, the paradox is that it's a stimulant. It's a central nervous system and peripheral nervous system stimulant that people take to calm down, to combat anxiety. It doesn't really make any sense until you realize there's also receptors in the GABA system. Right, okay. So it's a stimulant, but when you smoke it, you calm down. And it's still a stimulant. It's still a like, stimulant. it's doing both of the things at once. That's the that's the kind of insidious thing about, about nicotine. Oh, by the way, smoking improves cognitive performance in smokers. Not in non-smokers. You shouldn't start smoking because you want to do better in school. Start smoking because it makes you look cool and grown up and badass. A kid. Smoking's bad for you. Don't smoke. You know what? I don't care. Smoke all you want. Go nuts. Just don't do it in here. Or, well, anywhere in the building. Get in trouble. It's your body. You're an adult. I don't care. I mean, I don't want anybody in here dying, but I'm saying, if you want to smoke, go, go, go crazy. But it actually does improve cognitive performance. Also improves cognitive performance in rats. And you're saying, if rats who smoke? <laughs> no. But when you take rats and give them nicotine um, and put them on a maze, they do better than rats that have been given nicotine. Uh, sorry, not been given nicotine on a maze. That's Warren Mech's work from uh, Duke University. And it was funded by a tobacco company. And I remember it's funny because Warren's a very cool guy and he doesn't smoke and he's like, people are, you took money from a tobacco company. Yeah, to see if a drug improved cognitive performance that it probably should. It's interesting. I'm not trying to promote cigarettes. He's at Duke University, a university founded on cigarette money. Dave, you're familiar with the term nootropic. With the term what? Nootropic? No. Basically, it's like um, taking a supplement that will increase your performance, like with your brain. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Now I know what you mean. Sure. They've uh, actually there's information to suggest that nicotine can can do such a thing. Oh, I'm sure that's I'm sure it's true because, like I said, in, in smokers it improves performance to be a lot of smoke. So it, it shouldn't surprise one that a, a stimulant in small doses can can improve performance. Same thing happens with cocaine. So it's not necessarily that it's nicotine, but no, it's, it's, it's a just a stimulant. Yeah. Yeah, because cocaine improves performance on, in the, with the right dose. 
What about in someone who doesn't smoke? So you just give them a cigarette? Oh, they'll just be coughing so much that they can't do something. But there won't be like an effect in performance. Either. I haven't seen anything like that. So it's kind of tough doing this kind of work because giving people nicotine is not something. First of all, studying smoking is hard because you have to study it in a lab that has entirely separate ventilation from the rest of the building because of smoking regulations and smoking regulations. There's a guy Western who doesn't. And he uh, has it, like his lab is completely closed off. It's closed off and it's got its own ventilation system. And it's, you know, only smokers go in there. He also, he also doesn't smoke. It's just something he's interested in. Um, so it's a little hard to study because I haven't seen anything like that. Wouldn't surprise me. Wouldn't surprise me in the least. It increases spontaneous motor activity in rats. I've talked about this before. You get the rat nicotine or whatever the drug, and then you put them on an open field, or you see if it works. It's stimulation, surprisingly. You also just give the rats some nicotine. You don't have little rat cigarettes, which is a shame because that would be awesome. It suppresses operant behavior. Operant behavior meaning bar presses. And it suppresses it, meaning, okay, I train the rat to push the bar to get food. I give the rat nicotine, and it presses the bar less. Uh, that'll pick up later, once the rat sort of gets used to having nicotine. Which should fit in with something that we're talking about in a moment. So basically, you take a ratio of how many responses there are without the nicotine to the number of responses with the nicotine and see what that ratio is. And you get something called suppression ratio. And it's actually usually not pushing a bar for food. That's an easy way to think about it. It's actually pushing a bar to avoid getting shocked. Six of one, half dozen of the other. Mentions this study. It's a sort of a landmark thing. Kenny and Mark, who, 2005, what they're doing here is they have rats, again, pushing a bar. And what the rat is doing is it's pushing a bar to get brain stimulation. Brain stimulation, I better look at my notes here. I can't remember. I think it's to the ventral tegmental area. Yeah, the ventral technique. So the rat pushes the bar and it gets brain stimulation, which is great. Because it's going right to the reward system, and the rat loves it. Believe me, if you could get direct brain stimulation to your ventral tegmental area or your accumbens, you'd never leave the house. You'd just sit around pushing the button, going, oh yeah. Right? You'd never leave. The economy would collapse if we could ever figure out this technology. So it's what we ever do. So on the left hand side, you get a baseline, okay, over here on the left. And that's the amount of bar pressing the rat will do to get, to get for brain stimulation. And then the rat is given oh, sorry, and, and the rat's taking nicotine. These rats on the left are being given nicotine. So these are rats that are being given nicotine and they're pushing them off. But it's a baseline measure. Now you start giving them different amounts of, I want to read this properly, dihydro beta ethyl, sorry, erythoridine. That's good. I'm glad I read that because it's clear now, right? So what it is is a nicotine antagonist. And they're being given three different levels, sorry, four different levels, as you can see there, of this antagonist. Now, it makes sense then, well, it doesn't make sense. What this is saying is that they have to, they now push the bar more to get brain stimulation when they can't, when they aren't on nicotine. So what it's showing then is that 
the reward system, sorry, the complex interaction between the reward system and nicotine. So it shows that when you block nicotine, it makes all reward less rewarding. You see that? Does that make sense by looking at that graph? Right, so as the amount goes up, the amount of this nicotine antagonist goes up, they, have, they will push the bar more to get something. To get something that's intrinsically rewarding. They have to work harder, or they will work harder. Showing that it's affecting the whole reward system. What you're basically doing, by the way, here, is you're, so you're blocking the effects of nicotine. You're in essence making the rats quit smoking. Right? Now what you do is you go back and you actually take them off the nicotine. Or sorry, now that they're, they're off the nicotine, you take a look at what happens over here. Now they're not be, being given that blocker anymore, that antagonist, but they're still pushing the bar more. In other words, there's now a, a long-lasting effect of the nicotine not working, of, not, of, of, of in essence not getting the nicotine. Does that make sense? It also should show you why nicotine is a hard drug to quit. It makes everything less rewarding when you stop smoking. Does this go away? Eventually? Oh, eventually, yeah. yeah. Though cravings, um, and I'll, uh, spoiler alert, this is like in two slides, but <laughs> cravings can last, there are reports of cravings lasting 13 years after people quit smoking. I quit a long time ago, and now and then, and it's very rare, but it's when I'm pissed off at something. The last time, I can't remember exactly when. Oh, yeah, it would have been two summers ago when I got a new barbecue that I was putting together. Yeah. And I, I, I couldn't figure out something. And I got up, and my wife said, where are you going? I said, oh, I'm going to the store to buy cigarettes. And she said, no, you're not. And I said, no, no, I'm just going to have a push more. I want one cigarette. This is I'm so angry. And I'm craving one. She says, calm down. I did. And I, I knew I wasn't going to go. But I was this close to going. If my wife and son weren't at home, I would have gone about second. And I literally probably would have had one and went, okay, that was dumb and probably thrown away. Except I don't know what they cost now. Like $46 a pack? I probably would have kept them. My grandmother, when she quit smoking kept her final pack in the freezer in case she went back to smoke. <laughs> Which is an odd choice. I have a friend, a former student, who quit smoking and carried two cigarettes with her, and still does, to remind herself that I can, I can quit smoking, which I, I could never have done. You're like, well, there's two there, I probably should smoke them. When I quit, I announced to everybody in my family, oh, I'm quit smoking. Really? Yep. How long did you smoke? Off and on? And this off and on being sometimes off for years. When I was in my early 20s, until my early 20s. So about 20 years. Yeah, on, off and on. Like, so there, there were periods in there of years where I didn't smoke. So I had one with a drink. Would, you be, would it be safe to assume that the longer you smoke and then quitting after that, the more you're going to crave it? Uh, I think that's probably pretty safe to say. Yeah. Yeah, I and mean, these days it would suggest that. I mean, this is in rats, but it would suggest that. Sure. Uh, but yeah, I mean, yeah, it's a whole, it's one of these cases where, this, this, this is not some surprises, for example, coffee drinkers smoke more than non-coffee drinkers. All about making the reward system work. They have to drink more coffee to get the reward from coffee. So, you know, coffee drinking correlated with cigarettes. Hey, what do these stars indicate? 
Uh, significant difference. Significant difference. Yeah. Somewhere between 85% and 95% of people who have a drinking problem smoke cigarettes. But again, should tell you something. It's, it's, it's making the reward system work. So as, as well, wasn't it? And I remember my wife, I went back, in the backyard, my wife said, what are you doing? And she said, I said, well, I'm just going to finish these cigarettes. I'm not going to just throw them away. I'll quit at noon. And I did. And it's like, I'm going to well enjoy these last like, four that I have. It's a nice day. I'm going to sit in the backyard and smoke. But I'm pretty good, so... Uh, one of the things, these, most of these rewards, uh, sorry, these withdrawal symptoms should surprise you because, as typical, rewards, uh, sorry, withdrawal symptoms are the opposite of the symptoms of the. So your heart rate decreases. Your appetite increases. It's like, well, why does that happen? Think about it. Again, you have to get more reward to feel good. Eating is rewarding. By the way, the average cigarette smoker. But the average smoker, but it's usually cigarettes, when they quit, gains about eight kilos. Wow. So you gain weight because you eat more. Dave? Yep. Why is it that cigarette smokers seem to eat less? Uh, because they don't need as much reward, right? This is, this is the notion. I don't know that anybody... It's also, um, most stimulants are appetite suppressants anyway. And that probably is because you're already getting your reward system. Good question. Uh, you have an inability to concentrate. It's, it's, it's amazing. Anybody here ever quit smoking? You don't have to. Does not matter? Really? So you all just keep... You're, oh, good. There you go. So you know what this is like, right? You can't think. It's hard, right? Try to think straight. I find that hard normally. But you're reading, it's like, I don't know where I was. I don't know where I am. I don't know why I exist. I'm going. You know, there's anger issues that happen. And they can be solved very quickly. Oh, I feel great. This is the greatest thing I've ever done, is have this cigarette. I'll quit after this one. Well, a friend of mine used to say, I'm not, I'm not going to quit smoking. I'm not a quitter. <laughs> I thought it was pretty funny. Um, your sleep gets disrupted. So, in fact, it's interesting that one of the problems is that you, while smoking has effects on your sleep, your sleep gets disrupted when you quit smoking, too. A lot of times that's because you end up having a lot, you get really tired during the day because you're not used to having this, you have the stimulant in your body. It's going to take a lot of naps. Also, you know what naps are great for? You can't smoke when you're having a nap. Right? So a strategy a lot of people use when they're quitting is it's like, I'm just going to lie down and not and just have a nap because I can't smoke when I'm having a nap. And in fact, that's oftentimes uh, giving this advice to people who quit smoke. Just go to sleep. Do, do, you know, go out and do something else other than smoking is often... Uh, there's a... Quit smoke. One of the things, the resources that I used when I quit was this. There's a website about, uh, and it's run by the Ontario government about quitting smoking, and it gives all these little tips. And one of them is have a nap, go for a walk. Every other thing they listed were things that I used to do while smoking. Read a book. Oh, you mean right now in my backyard while smoking? Because I can do that. Have go for a walk. Oh, go for a walk. Have a couple of cigarettes. Everything else is like except for riding a bike. You know. I'm not saying I haven't done that. <laughs> but everything else was like, yeah, well, I'll do that with cigarettes. And eating's great, because it's like, oh, yeah, I can, I'm not going to smoke while eating. Well, I know people who do that. That's not, that's not good. I don't want to, when I smoke, I don't want to smell cigarettes or taste them while I'm eating food. Not my scene, man. And there's genuine anger. People with their, their tempers get shorter. It's a real thing. It's a real effect. Uh, and 
depression. So people actually score as they look like they have major depressive disorder or dysthymia on things like that depression inventory when they first quit smoking. Now part of this, I think, is probably the fact that you've just removed something from your life that is like losing a friend. And I know this sounds weird if you've never smoked. But it's like, this was part of my life and now it's gone. To this day, I don't I don't have cravings anymore. They're gone. They're just pretty much gone. But, which, if you don't know what a cigarette craving is, you just, I can't describe it. It's a feeling of wanting to smoke a cigarette. It's like being hungry and thirsty and horny all at the same time. The difference is you can solve it by lighting a cigarette and sucking its smoke into your lungs. It's a really weird thing to describe. The thing is, um, what I still miss is the fact that it kills time. Right? Oh, I'll, and I'll tell you something. Like, for, for, like, right now, today, Paul was giving a test in this class, right? And we couldn't get into like, two minutes after 10. And anybody else, I would have just walked in and said, get out of here. But it's Paul. And Paul's a little slow, so I like to let him compare things like that. We're friends. But anyway, um, well, you know what I would have done six, eight years ago? Oh, I would have been outside smoking. Oh, this will kill five minutes. I'll go have a cigarette. I still miss that. That It's not like it's like, oh, I want a cigarette. It's like, that would be a thing I could do. It's a thing you miss doing. Right? So I think that's part of the depression thing there. I've heard that said, that's not just something that just came into my head. I mean, I've heard that said by a lot of people. It's like part of your lifestyle. You're missing something. Okay, so the smoking behavior itself, people have a daily pattern. Uh, after lunch and after dinner are the hardest ones, and the one in the, the first one in the morning are the hardest ones for people to give up. Because it's basically conditioning. That typically, you can't smoke while you eat unless you're my wife's brother-in-law. And you used to, anyway. It's the weirdest thing. It's like, not put this we're eating. It's like, but you can't say that because it's his house. Um, so you just go... So you're used to those. Most smokers smoke with other smokers. You may have noticed this outside after classes. And there's a social aspect to it. You actually meet people. It's a great way to meet people. Hey, you smoke, I smoke. We both do this thing. This is fun. You don't discuss smoking. You don't say, what brand do you smoke? No one does that. That's weird. But... It's something that, like, you will meet people that you never would have met. There's something social about it. They're also more likely than non-smokers to use other psychoactive drugs. This shouldn't surprise us. First of all, those data I showed you. But secondly, think about this. What we have here is a case where it's risk-taking behavior. Everybody knows smoking's bad for very few people today go, no, no, this is just correlation. <laughs> Everybody knows it's And you can feel it in your body when you smoke it. It makes you cough. Nothing that's really good for you makes you cough up big gobs of mucus. Maybe one of my bands, I mean, big gobs of mucus. It's not. But you do it anyway. It's risk-taking behavior. Yeah. The, the people that, uh, and I mean... I'm very general about this, so I'm sorry no, to say that at any time, but the, the groups of people that smoke till they're 90, let's say, yeah. and don't really have exist, yeah. much of an effect, are they outliers, obviously? I, I guess you call them that, but I mean, one thing you could say is they probably would have lived longer had they not smoked. The other thing is, like, 90's a pretty good run. <laughs> so if you could do it while smoking and you enjoyed it. I mean, that's my view of it, like, because it's not my body, and I'm pretty libertarian about drugs, so it's like, like when Leonard Nimoy died, he was like 93. And he smoked until he was 90. That's Spock. Yeah. yeah. He smoked until he was 90 or 91. And it's like, people were like, oh, look, smoking killed him. It's like, yes, he lived to be 93. But I assume his quality of life was less than, let's say, you or me that don't smoke, right? Yeah, but he was 93. <laughs> so, I mean, his quality of life's going to be worse anyway. But up until that point. Oh, I think it was worse, but it wasn't like he was walking around. Uh, it was cancer, lung cancer. It was old age. He just died. Just Yeah. So, I mean, now, there are people like that. You always hear about that guy, right? 
He's 117 years old. He fought in three wars, smoked three packs of cigarettes a day, and ate nothing but bacon and just big handfuls of butter every day. And you always hear about that guy. You don't hear about all the people that died when they were 47 because they got lung cancer. And there's a lot more of them. So smoking just increases your risk of getting cancer. Oh, of course it does. It doesn't give That's what cancer. most of these things do. Well, it increases you. It, it, does it give you cancer? Sure. But all it's doing is increasing the likelihood of cancers. Lung cancer in non-smokers is exceedingly rare. It happens. It happens. Um, but it's exceedingly rare. All these things you're doing is increasing the likelihood of you getting it. That's all there is. But there's a mechanism there. I just, I like you said, risk reward, things like that. Yeah. It increases the risk. Oh, does it ever? Yeah. yeah. There's a negative correlation with socioeconomic status. In other words, uh, just like every other drug we've talked about, lower socioeconomic status, smoke more. Also take more heroin. Also take more cocaine. Also drink more. This, this isn't surprising. Um, the demand is pretty inelastic for older people. So once you have an income, people still smoke. For young people, for kids, for teenagers, it's really elastic. Because upping the price of a pack of cigarettes by $3 when you have an allowance of $10 a week is a lot of money. The people titrate their doses. Yeah, they do. Uh, more than likely. In, meaning that smokers... Get the amount of a hit of nicotine out of a cigarette that they want. So they suck hard. So you give people a different kind of cigarette as a pack. It's technically they'll suck hard. Or if they're used to smoking quote lighter cigarettes, they'll just not suck as hard. If cigarettes, if they know they don't have very many, and those of you who smoke or smoke know this, if you know you've got six cigarettes and you, there's no chance you get it to a store till tomorrow. You won't sit down and smoke five of them right now. You'll titrate your doses up. You'll spread them out. People use it as a psychological tool, almost certainly. So people smoke when they're nervous. People smoke when they're trying to concentrate, these kinds of things. What talks about that? Do people enjoy having this nicotine bolus, this, which is like just a big bunch of nicotine in their mouth and then sucking it down? Yeah, they do. Very few people. People inhale. That's what I'm saying. People inhale. You're not going to get much of a hit of nicotine off a cigarette just by. It's getting it in your lungs. This big bunch of nicotine in your mouth, nicotine bolus, let's call it, and then sucking it in your lungs. All right, you should stop smoking. Smoke. Uh, most people quit on their own. Most people don't go to uh, the gum or the patch or anything like that. Most people, in fact, smoke on their own. It takes most people, uh, the numbers I've seen average between 8 and 12 attempts before they actually have quit smoking. Uh, behavior therapy works pretty reasonably. This is substituting something else for smoking under the care of a psychologist. For example, before I started, I planned to quit smoking for six months before I didn't tell anybody, and I started eating cough drops. We have no issue me doing. And every single time I had a cigarette, I ate a cough drop. Every single time. Classical conditioning. I'm a psychologist. I then ended up with a cavity. I did. Oh, well, you got a cavity, did you? Like this first cavity, I, I, I was like in my 40s. I never had a cavity before. I said, yeah, well, I quit smoking. So I eat cocktails. But the reason I'm always eating these things, they're a substitute for, for cigarettes. They're way more healthy. Also, I don't cough very much. Um, <laughs> Fisherman's Friends, which, by the way, the worst possible name because then you get the possibility of the slogan sucking on a fisherman's friend. So, <laughs> it just seems wrong. 
because it's not nice, is it? Right? It's just I'm glad no ad guy is coming up. Don Draper hasn't thought that one up. Uh, so substitution is what I'm talking about here. A self-monitoring, by the way, this is the other thing I did. It's exceedingly effective. <coughs> First of all, most smokers don't, they, they underestimate how much they smoke by a lot. So what you do for a few weeks is you just, you just smoke like normal. And you take note of every single time you smoke. And then you take a look and go, oh man, I smoke 22 cigarettes a day. And then you start cutting down, cutting down. And you go, oh, and looking at a graph... Going down is exceedingly reinforcing for most people. It's like, oh, look, I'm accomplishing something. Works pretty well. I did that too. Okay, smoking's bad for you. Um, so various lung diseases, lung cancer, birth defects in kids from smoking moms, heart disease, the carbon monoxide and the nicotine you're sucking into your body if your heart were too hard. I'm not going to go into great detail about the bad things because you all know the bad things. Go buy a pack of cigarettes and read the side of it. Just, it's like, this is poison. I think a much more interesting issue is secondhand smoke because... In Ontario, it is now illegal to say the word cigarette in a building. Uh, you can haul away, obviously. Now, the thing is, this the original study that came out supporting the idea of secondhand smoke being causing things like cancer, causing the same kind of effects in smokers as non-smokers, was from 1988 in the World Health Organization. They compared 650 people with lung cancer versus 542 people without lung cancer. And the risk ratios, in other words, what's the likelihood of getting it? It's going up by 0.16 or 0.17 if it was in the home or in the workplace. So if your risk, your, basically what that says is your risk is 1, they just said it arbitrarily, 1, and it's 1.17 or 1.16 if you are around someone in your home or work who smokes. There is, however, no deep problem there with the estimate, plus or minus 0.25. So that means there's a possibility, in fact, that you're less likely to get cancer if you're out. That seems really weird. So the world jumped on this, and it's good they did, by the way, because the second it's looks bad for you. <laughs> Don't misunderstand me. But it was jumped on it. Uh, jumped on because of this, and this right around the time. 1988 is basically when everybody said, oh, no, no more smoking inside. No more smoking in public buildings. It used to be, do you know that, again, this would surprise most of you, uh, you know where the um, coffee shop kind of place is? Not in, in Station Mall, not, not by the food court, but... Yeah. 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 People used to smoke there. They were, they were after. You could smoke anywhere in the mall, but that's what people usually smoke. You just couldn't smoke in a store in the mall. Don't get smoke in the store, just out in the mall part of So that's weird, right? And then in the States, the EPA did a study, and I guess this was 93, 94. This was only 11 studies at the time. And it only looked at really 10 pieces of data. Now, the problem here is not that, that all, all 10 pieces of data went in the same direction, by the way, saying it was bad for you. It's causing an increase in various things like lung disease, heart disease, cancer. And the same thing happened. There's a landmark paper by Wald in 97, and that basically ended. That's it. That's, that's it. No more smoking indoors. The problem was there weren't a lot of data yet. These were all meta-analysis stuff. Now, the issue then becomes... As I said, I'm not saying it's good for you. In fact, I know it's bad. This is one of those cases, and if you've taken statistics with me, you know that I, I, I talk about worrying about <coughs> P level. 
You know what that is? The p-level is the probability of something happening even just by random chance. And we have this bizarre worship in psychology of the 0.05 level of significance. In a lot of science, any of the, the sort of inexact sciences, biology and psychology would be the people in this room. We're not doing physics, we're not doing chemistry. It's, what we're doing is called complicated work. So because of that, we can't just say for sure, oh, that, that experiment worked. Like you can say physics or chemistry, we've got to look at something and say statistical likelihood. And we have this, this version of 0.05, 90 times out of 20, right? Hardly any secondhand smoke studies give you a P level of 0.05. Hardly any. Except they all go in the same direction. <laughs> they all are like 0 0.1, 0.07. And people who say that secondhand smoke isn't harmful will say, look, if none of it's at 0.05. And they're right. But we're dealing with a public health issue. Right? We're dealing with a public health issue. And it seems to me that being concerned about a false positive probably isn't as big a deal as being concerned about a false negative. You might missing something that's there. Okay. It's like, you know, when, when, um, when I was living in Newfoundland, we used to have a boil order on our water every single spring. Always. And I, I once asked somebody uh, from the province, what significance level do you use to determine if there's going to be a boil order? And he said 0.15. And at first you're like, 0.15? And then you realize, well, yeah, because let's see. You could make people have the inconvenience of boiling their water, and maybe you're wrong. Or what if you're right and you miss it because it's not a 0.05, and people, oh, I don't know, throw up and poop themselves to death? I think 0.15 is fine, thanks. So worrying about these things being at 0.05 is a red herring. You should say, look, I know it's most of these studies don't say 0.05, and there are some now that do. But they all go in the same direction, and they all say, it's not good. Right? Now, I think it does sometimes lead to silly things. I'm not going to deny that. Right? And there are people who think they get cancer by walking by people smoking cigarettes. I mean, I like, please. When I used to smoke and you'd be outside and you'd, somebody would walk by you and do this. <laughs> you're like, oh, you're, you know what? Um, yes, wait a minute. You made your point. We got an email once. This was years ago. Six, eight years ago. More than that. Something like that. Anyway, it doesn't matter. But about how you could smoke because of caring about health of other people. Only smoke in the back. And I replied to him, I can't remember who the hell the person is. I said, so we don't care about the health of the people in the back then? I said, you don't want cigarette butts out front. I agree. They're gross. How about you say, don't do that. It's gross. It's aesthetically not very pleasing. No, it's just about health. Don't say about health. You say it's about, you don't want to. I've often said, like, restaurants, instead of saying, people know it's about health, shouldn't smoke it. It's like, no, I don't want to taste cigarettes when I'm eating. You know, it used to be when you went to Tim Hortons and you brought your, your, brought your donuts home, they smelled like cigarettes. Actually, they, you didn't notice, though, because everything smelled like cigarettes up until, what, 1988? You'd go into a bar and you'd come home and you'd be just covered in this goo and it was just nicotine. Like it was just unreal. Like if you smoke, if you had glasses, like they'd, they'd have a film on And ceiling tiles would always be yellow. And no one knew, you didn't really notice that until they started saying no smoking inside and then it's like, oh, this building has white ceiling tiles. Again, <laughs> secondhand smoke is good for you. But what I'm saying is it's not probably it's probably not quite as bad for you as it's made out to be, but I'm okay with it being it's probably pretty bad for you. That, you understand what I'm saying? I'm saying like you don't get cancer by walking by somebody smoking a cigarette. 
but you get the negative effect, but you don't get the stimulus. But it's so small. I mean, like, the idea that some whiff of cigarette smoke Zephyr-driven into someone's office window can cause them discomfort. It's like, just, we live in a town that makes steel. Go outside and breathe. No, seriously. I mean, it's like, we live in West, Western industrialized society. It's really like smoking three or four cigarettes a day just by breathing. So might as well just smoke. Huh? No, no, that's not what I'm saying. Look, if you want to smoke, go nuts. I, like I said, I, I, I think everybody should have their own... I'm very libertarian about drug use. I just think it should be really regulated, too. I think it's fair enough to say people shouldn't smoke in a building. But it's like, just be sensible. All I'm asking for is people to be sensible, which is probably too much to ask most people. So it's not as clear as it's made out to be, but I'm not saying that it isn't harmful because it is. So I'm trying to be, I'm trying to be subtle, which is something I'm not very good at. Questions? All right, go have a cigarette. Thanks, guys. Yep. Thanks for listening to the lecture. Um, all of the audio is available, of course, on iTunes or whatever podcatcher you're using. Just search for da uh, Dr. Dave Broadbeck's uh, Psychology Lectures from Algoma University, which is the most ungainly title ever. Uh, these are released under a sh uh, um, Creative Commons copyright share like 3.0 Canada. Uh, you can't use these for commercial purposes. Um, you feel free to share them uh, and feel free to mash them up any way you want. But if you do that, that means I get to do the same thing with your stuff.
sort of like the GNU license. Um, I hope you learned something. But if you didn't, I, unless you're one of my students, I really don't care. Um, the music, by the way, for each uh, song, for each uh, uh, episode, <laughs> lecture, uh, is uh, available. They're all podcast, uh, like Podsafe music. So if you want to uh, find out about the bands, there's links on my website at people.aoc.ca slash broadback. Uh, if those links don't work, just contact me and I'll find uh, I'll find out. Um, often I put links uh, actually in the uh, if you want to call them show notes or blog posts. So uh, you know, buy these people's music. They're they're making the stuff available out there. Uh, thanks everybody. We'll see you next time.